Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we, we echo that, those words of that song. We want to praise you all our days for what you've done, Father, for sending your Son to die for us. Father, we give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. Father, thank you for what you can teach us in your word. As we look at this narrative in Acts, we look at our own young church in action. Father, I pray that you will impress upon us the message you want us to hear. I pray that my lips are your lips, my heart is your heart. And that we will not just be hearers of this word, but we will be doers of it as well. I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning, Christ Church. It's great to be here with you. As you know, last week, as John already related to, we had a wonderful celebration of our own young church in action. We were really looking at those various things that, that through God's help, that's happened here at Christ Church. As we continue to grow and move, a young church in action. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know we are, we are working through the, the book of Acts as we look at that young church in action as well. And there's been a lot of uh, various narratives that we've been looking at that we can apply to our own church. And here we have Acts chapter 15, as we had just read uh, to us. And we've titled this, The Church Solves a Problem. Now, if you've been in church as long as I have, you know that that's just one problem. There are many churches, or many problems uh, within churches, so the church doesn't solve all the problems, but this one problem. But this is a big problem that's happening here in Acts chapter 15, where the leaders are really coming together to, to settle a pretty important issue of doctrine. You know, throughout, throughout history, this has happened Time and time again, where leaders have come together and erroneous teachings of the person and nature of the Lord was condemned and the biblical principle and position was defined. We, we know in, in uh, 325, the, the uh, Council of Nicaea got together, and that's where we have the, the Nicene Creed, one of the foundations of our faith here. Leaders got together. And settled a doctrinal issue. We have the, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Also happening, the same kind of thing, leaders coming together. But none are as, as, as important as this one here in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. Because it addresses one of the fundamental issues, the fundamental doctrinal question of all. What must a person do to be saved? Or, in other words, the issue of works versus grace. You know, I think as a church, we, we often we think we understand grace. We, we use the word all the time, don't we? The bank gives us a grace period. Leaders fall from grace. Musicians speak of a grace note. We described an actress as gracious, a dancer as graceful. We name girls after it, hospitals after it. We talk about it at pre-meals, uh, our prayers. We sing songs about it, grace. We read it in scriptures, but do we really understand what grace is all about? I'm hoping that by the end of this morning, we have a firmer grasp of what grace is. As we look at the church solving another problem, the issue of what must a person do to be saved. 
You know, there was one professor I had heard some time ago who was trying to teach about grace. And he had an evangelism class. And what he would do at the end of his class, at the end of the year, at the end of their term, he would give their final exam. And everybody would come in and he would prepare to hand out this exam to this evangelism class. And he really wanted to talk about what grace meant. So what he said was, he said, before you answer any of the questions, make sure you read through the entire test. Before you start. And so he handed out the test and it said at the top, make sure you read through this entire test before you start. And on this test, what the students encountered was a nearly impossible test. There were questions, essay questions that weren't even covered. That they didn't even know were coming on this test. There were multiple choice questions. There was vocabulary questions on words they never even heard of. Huge, huge uh, spaces for massive answers. Tons of questions. And at the very end of the test, it said, you can either choose to complete this test as is, or simply sign your name and turn it in, and you'll receive an A. Well, the professor talked about the, uh, the various reactions that he had over the years. He would kind of sit there and watch what would happen. There was a lot of grumblings at first, a lot of groans as people were paging through this huge test, this nearly impossible test. And he said, towards the end, people started to get the picture. Some would sign it, and they'd come to the front and hand it to the professor quietly and walk out of the room. He said there were some students over the years who failed to do this and started just to take the test as is. They became so verbally, so frustrated that they would make verbal uh, moans and groans that they'd, they'd throw up their hands and they'd, they'd come forward and they'd just throw the test down and walk out of the room. And they'd receive an F. He said there was one student, though, that read through the entire test, got to the end, understood that he could sign his name, but didn't want any free gift. He wanted to take it as is. He studied hard, so he wanted to earn it. So he took the test. Took him hours to do it. He turned it in. Everybody else got an A. He got a C minus. The professor was showing that it's all about grace. The gospel is about grace. It's not something we do. It's not something we earn. It's all about grace. As we look at this passage, and hopefully you have your Bibles with you or your service sheets. Acts 15, verse 1. The people from Judea and Antioch... They didn't really understand this concept of grace either. They thought you had to earn it. What does it say in verse 1? It says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. See, what's happening is, is that Gentiles were really coming into the church in huge numbers at this point. And it was kind of threatening to the Jewish believers. Why? Because the Jewish believers lived their whole life following certain laws, certain customs, certain rules, one of which was circumcision. And it really seemed kind of unfair to them that these folks could just come into the church without following any of these rules, without keeping these laws, and that there's still a chance of them being saved. They were threatened. They were threatened by their own traditions, their own culture. They felt like their church was just going to change. And they wanted to keep it a close-knit group of the, of the same people doing the same things. Like-minded people. Now, I think it's easy to say, well, that happened in Acts 15. I'm glad we've conquered that. 
I'm glad we're a lot more open in our churches for people that aren't like us. I unfortunately uh, grew up and knew of a church that uh, was very legalistic in their preaching. It taught that you had to live a certain way, had to do a certain thing. And I remember there was a story of a man who came to the church who uh, hadn't been to a church in 25, 20, 25 years. And he had just been through a terrible divorce and was really had lost all hope. And he thought, you know what, the church is a place that I could come to. Never really been to church much. Haven't really lived that life. Came to the church and a greeter greeted him at the door. And he greeter said, tell me your story. What brings you to this church? And he proceeded to tell the story. And the greeter said, well, that's wonderful. We'll pray for you. But there's a church down the road that would have a ministry for you. You see, that church wanted to have a same kind of mindset, same kind of culture. They didn't want new people kind of coming into their church that haven't lived a certain way. Unfortunately, that church now is really not doing much. It's, they've had to lay off many of their pastoral staff. Numbers keep shrinking, decreasing, until they have this, just this small core group of people. There's no action really happening in that church. Christ Church, I hope that our church is not one of those churches. That we have our doors open and say, listen, you want to come in here. There is hope here. There is hope. And no, you don't have to be just like us. To come in here. Because the gospel really is for everyone. See, the, the people in this encounter, it was not just about whether God wanted to save them, but was how. How they were to be saved. They said, hey, you have to be circumcised, as it says in verse 1. These are the false teachers. This is what we talk about when we talk about false teaching. Paul warns about this later in Acts 20, as we'll see uh, later this summer. He says in verse 29 of Acts 20, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise and distort the truth in order that to draw away, after disciples, to draw away disciples after them. False teachers, distorting the truth of what, what's, what's necessary for salvation. Certain works, certain customs, certain rules. That's why I love what Thomas Jefferson says. He says, it's always better to have no ideas than false ones. To believe nothing than to believe what is wrong. It's better to have no ideas than false ones. How destructive for this church. How destructive for that church that I knew of growing up. How destructive for that church. That's why we are very careful up here as we preach the gospel, as we preach, that we do so as we look at Scripture and we use Scripture as our source. That's why I love our preaching team here, because I can trust every one of us to preach right from the Scriptures. And that's what we hear time and time again. People love hearing that we preach from the Scriptures. Why is that important? Because it's so easy to distort the truth. It's so easy to distort the truth. So what happened in verse 2, as you see in your service sheet, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Verse 3, the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. One thing I love about this encounter, well, it's kind of a side note to this, is, is Peter and Barnabas went, understand that that distance... Between Antioch and Jerusalem is like 250 miles. This took months of traveling. But what do they do? When there was a problem in the church, what do they do? They used it as an opportunity to spread the news. They use it as an opportunity. One thing I love about what John does, what Pastor Jamie do, 
So, you know, that we've had different issues within our church, different members, different encounters of things going on. But we use it as an opportunity, an opportunity to advance the kingdom, to share the saving love of Jesus Christ. They use it as an opportunity. So then in verse 5, it says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now here you see in verse 5, it's kind of a second group. The first group is saying, hey, there's certain things that you need to do in order to become saved. These are believing Pharisees who said, now, there's something you need to do after salvation. Obedience after salvation. So we have a couple different groups here. Some saying, listen, you have to do things before salvation. Others saying you have to do things after salvation. And then what happens? Peter gets up. Peter gives some speeches. And what Peter's point is, is that he proves that salvation is by grace and not of works. And he gives four proofs of that. Four proofs that the work of salvation is already done. Salvation by grace is proven by past revelation, the gift of the Spirit, cleansing from sin, and the inability of the law to save. So what happens? First one. Four proofs that salvation is by grace. The first one. Past revelation proves salvation is by grace. Look at verse 7. It says, After much discussion... Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know a few weeks ago we we encountered the the story of Peter receiving the vision from, from God about going and telling Cornelius and his family about the gospel of Jesus. Cornelius was not a Jew. Peter felt like as a Jewish, they had to have certain customs, certain laws in order to become saved. And that vision said, no, this gospel is for everyone. So Peter is talking about past revelation. He's saying, listen, God already made a choice years ago. This issue has already been settled. Past revelation. Therefore, the matter was settled. It's not about certain laws or certain customs or a certain group of people. This is really for everyone. Past revelation. Second thing is the gift of the Spirit proves that salvation is by grace alone. The gift of the Spirit. Look at verse 8. It says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. I love what Peter does here. This is genius. He anticipates them saying, well, listen, well, maybe Cornelius and his family weren't really saved. Maybe you went and that didn't really happen. Peter's saying, listen, God knows the heart. And he destroys any argument that they could have. God knows the heart and he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. The gift of God belongs to those who are truly redeemed. Romans 8 9 says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Peter then reminds him that God made no distinction between us and them. So the first proof is past revelation that salvation is by grace. The second one is the gift of the Spirit. The third one is the cleansing of sin proves that salvation is by grace. Verse 9 says, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. 
The cleansing of the Gentile believers' hearts by faith alone proves that salvation is by grace. Here's the key verse. It's familiar to many of you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works so that no one can boast. What is a purified heart, church? Purified heart is one that's not arrogant. It's not boastful. Can you imagine if we really did have to earn our salvation? How arrogant we would be. How much we would be bragging about all the things that we've done right. About all the wonderful things that we've been doing. How much we, we go to church or, or at Bible studies. Or how well our family is doing. Or how well we're, we're tithing. There would be a whole lot more boasting in the world. What's a purified heart? A purified heart is one that doesn't boast. It's not about your works. It's about grace. Undeserved. Unmerited. Charles, Charles Hodge says the doctrine of grace humbles a man without degrading him and exalts him without inflating him. So Peter's saying the cleansing of sin proves that salvation is by grace. They're, they're purified of their sins. They're saved. God does not cleanse people who are not saved. Paul wrote, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So... Past revelation, the gift of the Spirit, the cleansing of sin. If God already cleanses of sin, then this leads to the fourth point. The inability of the law to save proves that salvation is by grace. Look at verse 10 and 11. Now, then, why do you trust, try to test God by putting on the necks of a Gentile yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter warns them, don't put God to the test. It's not their place to challenge him. To put something around their necks that they can't even control, that they can't live up to. By saying that you have to do something and earn something, earn salvation, really is saying that God isn't in control of history. That his grace really isn't true and unmerited. There was one Lutheran scholar who said to add anything to Christ as being necessary to salvation like circumcision or any human work of any kind is to deny that Christ is the complete Savior. It's to put something human on par with Him, yea, to make Him the crowning point. That's fatal. A bridge to heaven that's built 99 one-hundredths of the way of Christ and even only one one-hundredths of anything human breaks down at the joint and ceases to be a bridge. Even if Christ could be thought of carrying us 999 miles of the way and something mere human to carry us the last mile, that would leave us hanging in the air with heaven being still so far away. What Peter's saying is don't put a yoke around them that they can't live up to, that they can't earn working for something that you can't get. What would that be like? What would it be like being somewhere and working for something that you could never attain to? It would be like hell. He said, don't put that yoke around them. Don't do that. Inability of the law to save. God sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place. So that's what grace is all about. That's what Peter proves here. That's really about grace. That's the gift for salvation. So how do we apply it to our own lives? Because many of us will walk out of here and say, 
I get it, Jared. I understand what grace really is. How do we apply this to our own young church in action? So my question for you this morning is where are you in this narrative? Where are you in this narrative? Some of us might be in the very first group who really don't like other people coming into our church who are not like us. We don't like change because we like this close-knit group of people. Christ Church, I hope that's not our church. I pray that's not our church. That we don't judge others because of the way we dress or maybe some past mistakes that we've had. That we aren't so dogmatic about following the rules in order to earn salvation. You know, it, many of you know the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son, there was a father who had two sons. One of the sons rebelled, if you remember the story, rebelled, wanted to live his life on his own. So he went and squandered the, the father's wealth, lived however he wanted, vicariously, however he wanted to live. And then he came back after years. And what does the father do? The father goes out. And greets him, accepts him, because he came back. And the other son, who lived a completely good life, was trying to follow the rules, was, was angry that the father would accept somebody like that. He says, look at him. He lived however he wanted to live. I've lived, I lived the right way. I followed all the rules. Yet you're throwing a party for him. You have to understand is that those two brothers, while they acted very different, their hearts were actually the same. They both resented their father's authority, tried to get, figure out a way to get out from underneath it. They both wanted to get into a position where they could tell the father what to do. They both rebelled. One rebelled by being very bad. One rebelled by being very good. They both were using their father for their own self-centered means rather than loving and serving him. One did so by breaking the rules. The other did so by being very good. Felt like he needed something that his father to give to him. Jesus used that, that parable to show that both ways, both brothers, are, it's really spiritual dead ends. We can't live the way we want to live. But we also can't expect that we have to earn something, that when, when we do good things, that we live rightly, that we, that we work up ourselves on some kind of ladder closer to heaven. We have to understand that deep down that God is more merciful than we can ever imagine. Then we'll know what we're accepted then we'll know that we're accepted. Church, there's some folks who get so frustrated. Get so frustrated at God because they think, listen, I've lived a good life. I've come into church, going to Bible studies. My family's in order. Reading my Bible. I'm doing all the good things. Why do bad things keep happening to me? I've had people in my office frustrated with God. I'm doing all the right things, they'll say, Jared. I'm doing everything right, except financially, I just can't get ahead. Why is God not rewarding me for that? Why is my spouse still sick? God, I'm doing everything right. Some of you are in here this morning coming to church because you feel like as long as you're coming to church, you're just moving up the ladder so you can do things and receive reward from God. And what you're saying is that God's not really in control. I want to be in control. And I always tell folks, listen, you have to understand that you are not in control of this. God is in control. That's why we humble ourselves. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. 
casting all your cares on him. How could you cast your cares on him if you're not first humble? You've got to realize that he's in control, not you. And we live the way we live righteously because he's asked us to. Not to reap some reward. Maybe you're like the other folks in this story. Like the Pharisees who already believe. But yet you feel like you still need to earn something. You still feel like you need to earn something. And you'll never feel good enough. I've spoken to those people too. A few weeks ago there was some in my office. I was doing some counseling. There was a man who was in my office who really wanted to get involved in the church. Really wanted to be used by God, but would tell me, Jared, my life is a mess. I have a bad marriage. I've made some bad decisions in my past with my kids. I've made some bad decisions in my own life and the way I wanted to go. I've made some bad financial decisions. I'm trying to read my Bible. I just don't have a piece about it. I want to get involved in the church. I don't have a piece about it. I can never be used. I'm never good enough. My life is a mess. And then they'll say, and then he said to me, so where do you want to start, Jared? Should we start with my family? Maybe we should start with my finances. My kids are a mess. Maybe we should start with them. Tell me where to look in the scriptures. Where can I find that? Where I can get some peace. Jared, where do you want to start? Because my life is a mess. And I I said, yep, you're absolutely right. You've got a lot of things to work on. Your marriage, your family, your finances, your spiritual life, your prayer life. But that's not where I want to start. I want to start with your own guilt. Because you put yourself in such a guilt that you've made such bad decisions that you can't ever be used by God. You've got to let go of your guilt. You've got to let go of your guilt. That's what grace is all about. You are a believer. You know and love the Lord Jesus? Yes, I know him. Did you ask for forgiveness of your past? Yes, I have. Do you really feel washed and clean? No, you don't. Grace washes us clean. It was John Piper who said, the great tragedy of sin is not the sin itself. The great tragedy of sin is that Satan uses the, the guilt of these failures to strip you of every radical dream that you ever had or ever will have. And there in place gives you a happy, safe, secure American life of superficial pleasures until you die in your lakeside rocking chair. You see, what happens with guilt is that it really forces us not to do anything. We feel like we still have to earn something. You talk about a young church in action. What would happen if we all felt so guilty that we never, ever wanted to be used by God? This church would never grow. I'm telling you right now, people look at pastors and go, you must live like the perfect life. I've made mistakes. You won't believe it, but Dr. John Guest has made mistakes. The worship team has made mistakes. But that guilt doesn't keep us down. That guilt does not keep us down. We understand it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. The best definition of of guilt that I've ever heard was by Alan Cohen, who said, guilt is punishing yourself before God doesn't. Guilt is punishing yourself before God doesn't. The beauty of this is, is Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I told this man. Listen, you've been justified. Have that peace. What peace do you want to have in your life? You want to get all these things under control? You've got to get rid of your guilt. Understand, we have a peace with God. Why? Because he's washed us clean. That's what grace is. It's unmerited. 
We've asked for forgiveness of our sins. We, we turn our life. We try to live differently the way he's asked us to live because he's asked us to. That's what grace is all about. So maybe you're like that person. Or maybe you're like the th- one other person in this encounter. Maybe you're sitting in this room this morning and you feel like you're here because coming to church is really the key to becoming saved, living a good life. I have to tell you, it's totally impossible to do unless you understand and receive the grace. Romans 3 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6, For the wages of sin is death. But the beauty of this is, is the gift of God. What is the gift? It's the grace. Is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what do we have to do, Romans 10? If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. Church, this is my prayer for you this morning. If you're that one person here who's never done that, Simply saying, listen, I know I can't earn this on my own. It's not by works. It's by grace. So Christ, I ask you to forgive me. Forgive me. Come into my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. And then start living differently, knowing the guilt has been wiped clean. As we started this sermon, I talked about what is grace. I leave you with this. When a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay, that's a wage. When a person completes and receives a trophy for his performance, that's a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service, that's an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize, and deserves no award, yet receives a gift anyway... That's a good picture of God's unmerited favor. And that is what grace is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace. Father, I pray that you be with us, Father, as we relate to this story, our own young church in action, Father. Father, I pray that we can take this to heart. Father, help any of those in this room who might be feeling guilty because they still have to earn something and feel like they can't be used by you, Father. I pray that you wash them clean of that. Help them to feel that peace you've justified. And you wipe them clean. And be with the one or two in here, Father, who may have never come to know you, never asked to receive that grace. I pray that they do that today. Father, we thank you. We love you for what you've done for us. We thank you for teaching us in your word. Be with us as we leave this place. And I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.